This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good evening, or good morning to you, wherever you may be. This is Radio Orbit. You're listening to it on KOPN 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio, and it's KOPN serving Columbia, Missouri, and all points surrounding in the middle of this lovely state. You're listening to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. I'm your host, as always, every Sunday morning from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m., and uh, tonight, no different. Have an exciting show for you all lined up tonight. Pretty excited about it tonight. Uh, my guest is Dr. Dennis McKenna. Uh, Dennis uh, is the brother of one of my old gurus, whose name was Terrence McKenna. And uh, talking to Dennis a few weeks ago, 
was uh, quite an experience for me and something that I was really uh, really excited to do and really pleased to be able to bring to you guys tonight. It was incredible. Talking to Dennis was almost like talking to Terrence himself. It's almost like uh, the two of those guys were uh, were half of the same uh, half of the same being, and only one half is still sticking around on the physical right now. So, in any case, uh, Dr. Dennis McKenna will be talking about shamanism and hallucinogenic plants and psychoactive drugs and compounds and uh, South American. Ayahuascaros and all kinds of interesting things uh, that uh, that Dennis has been involved in over the course of the last 35 or 40 years, and so it's a real interesting conversation. And I hope you all stick around and hear that interview with Dr. Dennis McKenna, uh, one of the most legendary uh, ethnobotanists, ethnopharmacologists uh, on the planet today. So, uh, Dr. Dennis McKenna coming up in just a, uh, about. 45 minutes or so here, maybe 50 minutes. I've got that on tape. It's not a live interview. Dr. McKenna was not uh, uh, too psyched to be uh, doing radio in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning. He told me it was just a little bit too uncivilized for him. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we did uh, we did that on tape a few weeks ago, and, and I'll be airing that for you tonight. So coming up, Dr. Dennis McKenna, okay? Also... Um, We'll be playing some music, as we always do, getting things going with little Pink Floyd. And uh, going to be playing some local stuff from my buddies in the band Solstice, local artists here in Columbia. We'll be playing that in just a little while here. Got some other stuff lined up as well. And uh, some news stories. We'll do a little space weather in a few minutes. Uh, if we're lucky, uh, we may have a little, uh, a little special special gift for space weather today. I'm trying to get my friend Kent Stedman on the line. The sun has been quite active <clears throat> over the last couple of weeks and uh, even uh, even more so in just the last week or so uh, as you know we've been talking about this uh, for quite a while we talk about the sun and what's going on in the skies every week but uh, for a couple months there the sun had been qu uh, pretty quiet and uh, however over the last two to three weeks things have really picked up activity has really increased we had uh, an x-class flare last uh, last week the day of the show which i was not really aware of uh, until uh, the morning after my show but uh, in any case um, more m-class flares this week and another x-class so uh, there's been a tremendous amount of uh, high activity on the sun over the last two weeks so if uh, if we're lucky here in a few minutes we'll get Kent Stedman on the line and we'll talk about the sun with Kent uh, as uh, as he is one of the uh, one of the authorities on that on that local star of ours so we'll do that in a minute let me uh, uh, get a couple things out of the way here real first uh, real fast uh, oh my gosh last night Medeski Martin and Wood what an incredible show down at the Blue Note if you were lucky enough if you were lucky enough uh, to uh, see that show, you uh, you know what I'm talking about. And as usual on Saturday night or Sunday morning at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, the microphone is giving me trouble. So uh, we'll get that taken care of. It did that last week as well. And every time I have Kent Stedman on the line, it seems to do that. So I don't know if we have some weird EM thing going on or what. But last week I was able to swap out the mics. And, um, uh, and I'll try to do that again this week so uh let me take a minute to do that and in the meantime you can listen to some music and we'll be back again and do some space weather in just a few minutes this is radio orbit you're listening to kopn mike hagan and uh back in a minute with space weather in the meantime this is k's choice I'm on 
Choice. <clears throat> That's called Losing You from their new CD. And this is Mike talking to you live, Radio Orbit, KOPN 89.5, and it's about 2.20 in the a.m. on Sunday morning, the 14th of November. Okay, uh, before the break, I was uh, fixing the microphone, and I think I was able to do it. We'll see if the thing acts up on us again, as it normally does in the middle of the night on Saturday. Hey, I was saying, uh, I went to a show last night at the Blue Note, Medeski, Martin, and Wood, incredible three-piece uh, 
Oh boy, hard to hard to classify their music, but uh, three incredibly talented guys. And if you were lucky enough to make it down to the Blue Note last night and see MMW, what a what a great show! So that was cool. Was out there last night uh, and enjoying the local music scene around Columbia as always. In the meantime, I've been trying to tile my kitchen floor this weekend, and oh my god, unbelievable! My hands are so sore; it's not even funny. I've had to tear up all this old linoleum that's been on the floor for. Who knows how long? Probably 25 years. I probably got asbestos embedded in all my lung tissue. Who knows, man? It was just a, a complete undertaking. I had no idea it was going to be so difficult. So, uh, so I've been in the middle of that, uh, uh, trying to get my floor tiled in between doing radio and listening to live music and all kinds of cool stuff here. So anyway, I just thought I'd show you with that because as I've been working the board here, I just realized how sore my freaking fingers are. Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, let's get right to it here. Uh, what did I want to tell you guys before we do space weather? Thanks for all the nice emails. I appreciate them as always. Also to everybody listening over the web, uh, thank you guys as well. I appreciate it. And I know it's cool that we can get these programs up. I've been pretty lucky to have them up within a day or two after the original broadcast, and uh, we've been getting quite a few listens over the web. So all you people listening from wherever you may be on the web, thanks, and uh, keep listening, tell your friends about it, and uh, send me some information, send me some email, let me know your thoughts, let me know your questions, concerns, anything that you might uh, like to share with me. And if you want to do that, my email address is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at aol.com and the website of course is www.radioorbit.com that's r-a-d-i-o-r-b-i-t dot com just one o in the middle there radioorbit.com uh, go to the archives page if you want to hear any of the old stuff uh, or go to the main page if you want to see what we'll be talking about tonight and uh, quite frankly tonight we're going to be talking about tripping out a little bit and uh, going to be doing that with Dennis McKenna in just a few minutes okay uh, let's see upcoming guests tonight as I said Dennis McKenna next week not sure who I'm going to air next week it's either going to be an interview with Dr. Paul LaViolette or LaViolette depending on how you pronounce that uh, a gentleman named William Line who talks about free energy and anti-gravity technology that was developed way back in the days of Nikola Tesla uh, we have Scott Stevens, a meteorologist from the Seattle area, who will be with us within a few weeks talking about the weather and what's happening on planet Earth and uh, maybe some uh, interesting things that are related to the weather that he researches and studies. <clears throat> so Scott Stevens will be with us in a few weeks. Also, Sean Montgomery from Canada, up there in the uh, northern Ontario area of Canada. Sean is a researcher who has specialized in the history of Royal Raymond Rife, and Royal, uh, Royal Raymond Rife was an incredible scientist and a, uh, a genius, really, of sorts in the early 1900s who made some incredible medical advances that most people aren't aware of. So we'll be talking to Sean Montgomery in a few weeks about Royal Raymond Rife. Okay, uh, that's taking care of business, so uh, let's do a little space weather here. If uh, you were fortunate enough last week, um, especially if you were on the other side of the planet, we didn't get too much on the western the western hemisphere here, but the Leonid meteor shower was something that occurred <coughs> last week and peaked last week. That's something that happens every November in the middle of the month. Earth kind of cruises through a... A dust cloud of interplanetary dust and debris and 
rocks and all kinds of things. And uh, the source of that debris is a comet that's called Temple Tuttle. And Earth runs runs through the uh, through the tail of the the remnants of the tail of that comet every year in November. Uh, the um, the Leonids are going to peak in just a few days. I think I may have said that it was uh, peaking last week, but I think it peaks around the 19th or the 20th, actually, this month. But uh, again, in the northern or in the western hemisphere, I don't think we're going to see too much activity. Uh, you may see one or two an hour, but uh, uh, nothing like you'll see on the other side of the planet. So uh, check it out if you're interested. Leonid meteors uh, coming up in the next in the next few days here, in the next week or so. Also, uh, I mentioned this about a week or two ago, but uh, in the morning, Jupiter and Venus have been putting on a beautiful show every morning. Uh, if you look to the east. As uh, the sun's rising or before the sun rises, uh, they around November 5th or so, they were almost right on top of one each other as they rose in the east. They've been slowly spreading their distance between one another over the last week or so, but still a really pretty sight in the morning. So if you want to, if you happen to be up early in the morning, which many people who listen to this program are around uh, four o'clock or so, take a peek out to the east and you'll see a real pretty sight uh, rising there in the east, and that's Jupiter the not-so-bright-looking star, and uh, Venus, the very bright one that will be uh, in the, uh, just within a degree or so or a couple degrees of, of uh, Jupiter. So that's that. Now, in the meantime, uh, the sun has been acting up, and uh, I've got uh, someone here on the phone who can probably help us explain some of this stuff and uh, give us a little overview of what's been happening over the last couple weeks. If we're lucky, he's still uh, still with us here. Uh, Kent Stedman uh, from Cyberspace Orbit. If you're with me here, let me let me say hello. Hello. Hey, there he is. All right, Kent. Hi. How are you? Hi. I'm here, clearing my throat, ready to go. All right, cool. Uh, for uh, for people who are not familiar, if you're a uh, if you're a new listener to the program, Kent is a regular guest of mine and an inspiration of mine, and uh, somebody who talks to us every every. Uh, four or five, six weeks here on the program, but tonight we're not doing a full show. I just wanted to get him on the air real quick uh, to talk about some of the things that have been happening on the sun over the last week, and Kent has been following the sun and watching it very closely for many, many years now and knows more about our local star than uh, than most people on this planet. So uh, uh, what have you been seeing, Kent? I know, that, uh, I know that big sunspot area 696 launched a couple of whammies at us this week, but uh, that seems to be rolling off the disc now. What, uh, where are we at? It's quieting down now, but, you know, when those spots come around, which are like storms in the corona of the sun, but they're actually what they are is uh, magnetic flux, vortexes come around. And then at the, if they're really uh, electrical in nature, they'll, they'll uh, uh, fire at us in a stream of uh, protons and electrons and then maybe plasma. And when that reaches the Earth, you know, it, uh, wax out the earth pretty good. It hits our atmosphere, compresses it, and then it'll spring back out like a big Nerf ball. It'll energize our uh, our atmospheric layers, and they'll expand. And that can uh, right now that's causing a, a matter of very specific, deep concern. Hey, uh, Ken, I think you told me a couple of weeks ago when we have these these uh, this flare activity like we've been seeing where it's just sort of one after another, bang, bang, bang. There's sort of a cumulative effect of that uh, on the Earth's magnetic uh, magnetic field? I think so. You know, next time you get Doc McKenna on, ask him what the sun is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll take us a whole night to talk about that one. <laughs> you know, we've had various models of cultural 
layers of history, and then they're all a little bit different. He's he's an expert on the shamanistic concept. I think we have to take that into consideration too. No question about it. But no. each culture, he will interpret it in terms of their basic uh, uh, paradigm. Uh, we call it a thermal nuclear exchange engine. Now, I'm not sure that's really what it is. Right, but based on our culture, that's the way we define it, right? Yeah. Okay. Our big the source of electro electrical electromagnetic activity. Anyway, look, uh, Mike. Here's what's happening. When when you guys when there's a solar storm and the, con- uh, the conditions are right, you'll see uh, the ghost, the race in the sky dancing around called the Aurora Borealis. That's sure. one thing we see specifically, you know. Right, right, right. But here's something really specific that we need more people to look into. Uh, it's causing what is called, when, when the sun excites the atmosphere, it will expand, and, it would, and anything that's up there, you know, in orbit around our Earth, the artificial toys we've put up there, It'll cause what's called atmospheric drag. Okay. Uh, the ISS is... The Russians just published an article and said the ISS is coming down. Yeah, you know, I read that, and I was... Uh, I, if I had time, I was going to talk about that in my first hour here, but since uh, since you're on the air, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, the most uh, dramatic, uh, specific effect of Earth's solar activity. It's creating uh, an excitation of the uh, atmosphere, the magnetosphere, and uh, it's expanding and creating drag on the, the International Space Station. And it's dropping three times faster than it should be, and it's come down like seven kilometers. Really? So, the, so ISIS is actually losing altitude right now? Yeah. Wow. To where, to where, you know, I don't know when, right. how, where, but right. it's coming down, they're saying. Well, now that's, that's kind of... Weird. <laughs> damn right it is. It makes me think of uh, it. I mean, this is going to sound strange, but it makes me think of that old Hopi prophecy. Yeah. You know, they talk about the uh, the the big house in the sky uh, falling down, kind of before uh, the Kachina, before the Blue Star, and then and all that business supposedly begins. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, Boeing and other uh, uh, agencies have serviced that and have installed aboard the ISS what's called the Destiny Labs, which consists of uh, arrays of refrigeration units. Now, I wonder what is inside of a refrigeration unit aboard the uh, International Space Station, but they've been doing uh, biological experiments up there, undoubtedly. Oh, yeah, no question about it. In fact, I think they're, I think they're in, even on the record as saying that that particular project had a biological component to it. So who even, uh, so, yeah, so now we have that to think about. If that comes crashing down, what, uh, what about the containment of any of the things that they might be experimenting with up there? Yeah, how wormy, wormy <laughs> is the uh, International Space Station. Wow! All right, so that's one that we're going to have to watch. Uh, and if and if the uh, if the solar activity continues, and we continue to see the uh, that atmospheric effect, the atmospheric effect that you're talking about, well, then uh, I guess that means we really better keep our eye on ISIS because also uh, the the lower the altitude, that uh, the that drag becomes even more significant just because there's more atmosphere there. You know what I'm saying? It probably becomes exponential. Right. 
So what is the sun and the earth? What happens when the sun spits out a solar storm in the direction of the earth? Well, it fires subtle particles at us, and the uh, proton flux will go way up. The uh, electrons will go way up. Protons are normally shielded from us on the surface of the earth by the atmospheric layers. But, you know, people out there uh, in, in on the space station, especially, it becomes real lethal. They can't do, for instance, a spacewalk. Had our uh, Apollo astronauts been on the surface of the moon, uh, you know, during a storm like we've seen 8th, 9th, 10th of this month, they would have just fried and been the end. <laughs> They'd have been microwave baked. Right. And another thing is the protons are accumulative, and there's a lot of study on this. They build up. They don't necessarily go away, but they hang out sort of bouncing around like little tinkerbells in our atmosphere. And, uh, and uh, over the solar cycle 23, has been a buildup in uh, proton activity in the Earth's atmosphere. Now, protons, you know, that's just being nuked, essentially. Right. And electrons. So the implications of this uh, solar cycle 23, which doesn't seem to want to let go, uh, wasn't what was it last couple of weeks ago? We were told <clears throat> by some of the press releases that we're going into solar minimum. Right. Nope. <laughs> yeah, that was a good joke, and it's funny because, as you know, you and me follow this stuff pretty closely, and there are cycles within cycles and all this stuff. And certainly over the last two years, we've seen this October-November. Uh, sort of time period be uh, be a pretty uh, pretty significantly active period, just like last year. It seems like last year maybe a little bit more intense actually, but uh, but this year sort of following the same pattern. Yeah, and I'm not a I'm not a solar physicist or even an astrophysicist. I'm a person that just watches it and watches the uh, the uh, exciting things on the sun. I've seen a lot of things. I really that my college and high school science classes didn't prepare me for so uh, you know uh, what is the sun I really want to know what it is <laughs> some say the the shamanistic tradition all the shamanistic traditions pointed to the sun as a, uh, a sort of a spiritual source or a, even a deity right right and, and in fact the uh, the root of our of our word soul of course s-o-u-l coming from the uh, the South American or the Spanish traditional word of of the name of our sun, which is of course sol s o l. So, and during the industrial age, then they called it a big ball of fire, you know, like a smelting furnace for the steel industry. And then during the nuclear age, they call it a thermonuclear engine of some kind, uh, trying to make it into a machine model, you know. Interesting. I never really thought about that, but that does make sense now, what you said earlier, that it's sort of uh, the, the the definition of that star sort of is reflected in the in sort of the cultural paradigm. And now we got string theory and the hyperspace and multi-dimensions and quantum theory, and uh, they're wondering if the sun isn't uh, something else entirely. I've even wondered if it's kind of like a uh, the flip side of a black hole, you know, an opening right. through the curtain of our local space into something else. Yeah, it could be all of those things. Yeah, yeah, or none of the above. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Again, one of those things we just don't know a whole lot about, although uh, uh, we uh, certainly are interested in finding out. I tell you what, the sun is one of the most interesting objects to watch, obviously, in the solar system, and lately it's just been quite a, <laughs> quite a, uh, quite a show that it's been putting on. So, 
and Mike and I have seen strange things around the sun. We've, oh. seen, we've seen the sun blow cubes, go figure that, and triangles moving around the sun, triangular uh, 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 shapes in the uh, corona. Yeah, lots of lots of uh, angular and geometric uh, uh, sort of imagery that that just doesn't make any sense in, in, in uh, conventional physics because those sorts of angles and things that we see just aren't supposed to happen in nature. So, and we've seen fluid-like plasma flows, and we've seen uh, like a big slinky one back in what was it, '99 come or '98 come zapping out of the sun, and <laughs> uh, so. <clears throat> Uh, there's a still a lot of mystery, and our kids will have to continue observing the central entity in our solar system, and they'll probably find out a lot more about it as they do. Right. All right. Well, hey, look, uh, Kent, we've got a packed program tonight, so I want to say thanks just for uh, coming on, spending a few minutes with us, and explaining a few things that are happening on the sun. And uh, go look at them. I try to make them visible. Cyberspaceorbit.com. Yeah, do that. Go over to Kent's website, www.cyberspaceorbit.com. He always has some uh, uh, some great imagery up there and lots of real uh, interesting and informative links uh, with regard to lots of other things as well. But certainly the sun uh, among them. So. All right, well, uh, we'll have to do another show here, Kent, in the next few weeks. Uh, we'll, uh, I'll give you a call off the air, and we'll, we'll plan that, okay? Okay, see you later. Hey, thanks again. Have a good night. Tell, uh, tell the family we say hi. Okay. All right, Kent. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com talking with us about the sun and what's happening on our, uh, on our local star there. So, anyway, let's uh, take a break here, play a little music, and we'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. This is some local music from uh, a band called Solstice, and uh, they're available all around the Columbia area, and some good guys and some good music. Check it out. This is Casey and the Fellas. This is a song called Latina, live, Solstice, Radio Orbit, KOPN.
Thank you. All right, live music from Solstice, a three-piece local uh, band, and uh, a couple of a couple of real good guys and some talented musicians. Great, uh, great rhythms there and some great guitar playing. So, thanks to Casey for dropping that off the station. We'll play some more of that. I think those guys are in the studio right now, working on uh, uh, working on some stuff. So, good luck with that project, and uh, thanks again for dropping off that music. Always uh, interested in some of the local stuff, and uh, if you get it to me here at the station, I will always play it. So, anyway, uh, back to things. Radio Orbit, KOPN. Uh, we just had my friend Kent Stedman on the air talking to us about the sun and what's been happening uh, up in space over the last week or so. Real interesting stuff going on with the International Space Station, as Kent was talking about uh, the... ISIS, so it's called, is losing altitude, and uh, unless uh, unless that is abbreviated, obviously uh, that uh, does not portend well for the International Space Station. It may be coming down. Hopefully, they can uh, remedy that problem though and keep it up there in the sky. Okay, a couple things I want to talk about before we get into the interview with Dennis McKenna. First of all, um, I do I wanted to mention earlier I've got uh, a a subscription, a one-year subscription to Fate Magazine uh, for anybody who calls. Uh, let's just say um, I'm going to play some music at the top of the hour to get uh, get things going before the Dennis McKenna in- interview. Um, I'll uh, I'll mention it again before that. But uh, when I when I go to music at the top of the hour, the first person to give me a call can have a uh, a one-year magazine subscription to Fate Magazine, a great little magazine out of. Uh, the the uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul area, Phyllis Galdi, the owner and publisher of Fate Magazine, a friend of mine and uh, 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 a guest on this program in the past, and we'll probably have Phyllis on again sometime in the future. In any case, uh, top of the hour, we'll be doing that, so if you're interested in a, a one-year subscription to a real interesting little magazine called Fate Magazine, one of the oldest, uh, in fact, the oldest magazine of its genre, been publishing stories about the strange and unexplained and mysterious for some 50 years now, since 1948, so actually 56 years now. So Fate Magazine, I'll be giving away a subscription to that in just a few minutes. All right, here's a story from the, uh, from the China Daily. It's called, Noon Turns to Night as Clouds Black Out the Sun. Day turned to night across Shenyang when a freak cloud formation 8,000 meters deep blanketed the northeastern city. For over half an hour, noon was as black as midnight. Lights from cars, buses, and lorries went some way to breaking up the darkness. But tremendous lightning flashes also accompanied the phenomena. Reports uh, came from the website www.sina.com, sina.com.cn. Uh, there was a convergence of two cloud fronts uh, that formed an 8,000-meter-thick connective cloud cluster. With the sky and the sun effectively blocked out, visibility was reduced to near zero, according to an excerpt from the provincial capital's meteorological bureau. The marvelous spectacle was also reported in many other areas of Liaoning province and lasted for half an hour, uh, for more than half an hour in some places. The meteorologist warned that temperatures are likely to plummet in the coming days. 
Uh, again, interesting story, something that piqued my interest because I'm interested in weather manipulation, and I think that it's something that is an ongoing project uh, that a number of different powers around the world have the technology to manipulate the weather. Now, the technology behind it, whether it's scalar technology or whether it's some, uh, some form of uh, Tesla technology or something based on older technology like Tesla was doing or Wilhelm Reich. Of course, we know Wilhelm Reich had quite a bit to do with uh, quite a lot of work that involved clouds, uh, the so-called cloud buster being one of his most uh, memorable inventions, uh, Wilhelm Reich, that is. So, anyway, I sent this uh, email to Scott Stevens, our meteorologist buddy out there in Seattle who we're going to have on the air here in a few weeks, and uh, he definitely... Uh, saw some strange things with that, um, and so I just thought I'd read it to you here. We're going to have to see if we can come up with the radar imagery that uh, that was present when that particular atmospheric occurrence happened. Because when we look at the radar, uh, when the radars, um, when we look at the radars of these things, they tend to give clues to natural and unnatural phenomenon that uh, that are occurring so if you see the if you see the radars there are certain things that you look for that become pretty apparent that uh, that things are things are being manipulated so in any case pretty interesting story and uh, another big question mark how does something like that happen um, and uh, well let's see what do we got we got about 10 or 12 minutes before the top of the hour so I think I will kind of do a lead in to the interview with Dennis, and we're going to talk a little bit about drugs for a while, for the rest of the program, actually. And uh, we'll start with a uh, an article here that I'm going to read from the website cognitiveliberty.org. And uh, that's the address as well, if anybody's interested in uh, information about uh, drugs and drug laws and freedom and free speech and freedom with your body and art and spirit and lots of other things, you can uh, find a lot of that stuff at cognitiveliberty.org, C-O-G-N-I-T-V-E, liberty.org, cognitiveliberty.org. This story right at the front page there says, Pharmacotherapy and the Future of the Drug War. A 50-page policy report released by the nonprofit Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics warns that the war on drugs may be about to enter a new era that expands the drug war battlefield from the Colombian coca fields and the Middle Eastern poppy fields to a new terrain directly inside the bodies and the brains of drug users. The report is the first comprehensive and critical analysis of pharmacotherapy and the use of new medications designed to block the effects of illegal drugs. While acknowledging that such, pharma that such pharmacological aids may well benefit people who voluntarily chose to use them or choose to use them, the CCLE report raises concerns about potential coercive use as well. And uh, I would add that any time we have these technologies, uh, they tend to be used for the coercive side. We've seen it historically every time uh, that a technology is developed that would allow us some new astounding capability. Rather than use that for something that might be positive, it typically gets uh, converted into what I would consider the negative at least, and positive and negative are those things that are uh, a little bit uh, subjective as well. But <clears throat> I'm one of these people that believes that if, you, if you're not harming anybody else, you do what you want with your own body. 
In any case, uh, let's continue here with the story. In addition to waging a war on drugs, the federal government is now working to eradicate the disease, quote-unquote, of drug use. These metaphors, notes the CCLE report, play an important role in driving federal drug control policy because they frame the remedies available to, uh, to the government. For example, uh, the 2003 National Drug Control Strategy casts users of illegal drugs as vectors of contagion who are in denial about their disease and who need treatment before, quote-unquote, transmitting the disease to others. Such language, says the CCLE report, lends itself to coercive treatment wherein the government feels justified in, quote-unquote, medicating drug users through policies of compassionate coercion. Coercion, whether compassionate or otherwise, is still coercion. Okay? The CCLE report examines the pharmacotherapy drugs currently under development and also highlights the legal rights that would be violated if a government were to require certain purses, such uh, pertinent, I'm sorry, certain persons, such as prisoners, people on probation, public assistance recipients, this sort of thing, uh, to take anti-drug medications. The implicated legal rights include the right to bodily integrity, the right to privacy, the right to make one's own informed and voluntary medical decisions, and the right to freedom of thought. The report concludes with policy recommendations which underscore the importance of restricting pharmacotherapy medications to voluntary use. In the absence of extraordinary circumstances, notes the report, the government should be barred from coercing a peaceful person to taking a pharmacotherapy drug. And I could not agree more with that last statement. The government should be barred from coercing a peaceful person to take pharmacotherapy drugs. Okay, if you're interested in this, you can get a copy of the, uh, the report. Uh, you can get a PDF free of charge at uh, the Cognitive Liberty website. That's cognitiveliberty.org. You can also contact Stephanie Anderson, who's the publications director over there at CCLE, and uh, her number is 530-750-7912. And uh, people doing very good work, and work that needs to be done and needs to be supported over there at the Cognitive uh, Liberty uh, and Ethics Organization, the Center, Center for uh, Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. One more time, that address is cognitiveliberty.org. You know, um, the so-called drug war, in many ways, is no different than the war on terrorism, the war on drugs. It's, it's sort of uh, wars against a concept or wars against a tactic. And uh, in my opinion, these are sort of things that are unwinnable, and it's really just done for um, uh, effect the names and the descriptions of these things are done primarily for effect, regardless of whether those names are accurate or not. The drug war is something that's been going on for how long now? With absolute disastrous effects, we have, uh, not only do we have uh, similar levels of drug use as we had years ago when the so-called drug war began, in fact, we probably have increased usage in a number of different areas, um, but we also have prisons that are now filled to the gills with peaceful, non-violent offenders that uh, were arrested and convicted of possessing or using these particular substances. And uh, certainly, I will qualify this. There are drugs that are very dangerous. Uh, there are drugs that are 
very dangerous and very bad for you and very harmful. There are also drugs that are good for you, in my opinion. Some illicit, some illegal, and some not. Some are legal. We tend to have a, in my opinion, a double standard. We have giant pharmaceutical interests and corporations that push drugs harder than the guy on the corner selling a, a gram of crack is pushing it. They're on the television. They're in your magazines. They're in the newspapers. They're in all areas of the media, print, visual, and radio. The companies are embedded with all of the hospitals. They're embedded with all of the physicians of this country. And the quote-unquote legal drug business is a very lucrative business, just like the illegal drug business is a very lucrative business. Uh, but they are very similar, in my opinion. Some are condoned and some are not. A perfect example of that, and um, let's use... Uh, uh, let's use marijuana as, a, as an example, even though we'll be talking about things a little bit more powerful than marijuana tonight. We'll be talking about uh, psychoactive drugs that literally have a hallucinogenic effect, uh, primarily compounds that come from natural origins, plants, roots, leaves, things that grow on God's earth. And uh, I think that's something to remember as well, that let's not make plants and animals illegal, okay? They have every right to be on this planet. They are natives of this planet, just as you and I are. Every plant, every animal that grows here, they have a birthright to be here as well. And uh, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to have laws that outlaw plants and animals. Give me a break. Okay, in any case, marijuana, perfect example. We have certain drugs, like marijuana, that are considered uh, less than desirable by the powers that be. And the question is, why is that? There are plenty of reports that show that marijuana, relatively speaking, is certainly nowhere near as dangerous as many of the other drugs, certainly many of the drugs that are legal, uh, one of them being alcohol, uh, not to mention the pharmaceutical drugs uh, that are peddled by the, by the big-time legal pushers. But... Marijuana doesn't have the desired effects of the culture right now. We live in a capitalistic culture. We live in a culture where uh, people are defined by the level of economic success that they've acquired, the amount of money that they have, the kind of job that they have. And marijuana is a substance that is not particularly conducive to work. Marijuana is a substance that is more conducive to introspection and relaxation and creativity, music, art, painting, writing, dancing, music. These are all things that we enjoy uh, when we use substances like marijuana. Work, on the other hand, is something that is probably not particularly desirable when you're using that drug. Hmm. So let's look at coffee now in relation to marijuana. Coffee certainly a drug. A strong drug. We know that there are compounds in coffee that are highly addictive, caffeine being one of them. Uh, the heart has shown, um, I take that back, the effects of coffee have shown to have negative, uh, negative effects on the heart, on the liver, on the kidneys, on the stomach, 
on many other parts of the body. It's a dangerous drug. It's not good for your health. However, it's certainly legal. And not only is it legal, it's written into the labor contract of nearly every union in this country that there has to be a 15-minute break before noon and a 15-minute break afternoon to supply the worker bee with his coffee. And why is that, do you think? Well, because coffee is certainly conducive to work. It gives people energy, although it's a false energy. You tend to drop off the table once the effects wear off. But it is conducive to work. So if you pump the worker bee full of coffee all day, he should be able to keep working and do a good job and keep, uh, keep that old economic engine pumping. Uh, the converse of that being, again, the analogy I made with uh, marijuana a little bit earlier, a drug that certainly doesn't have the, the, the uh, similar effects of coffee. So we have double standards. We have uh, certainly agendas behind these laws, certainly agendas behind these rules, and they are, for the most part, outrageous, in my opinion. The government and the officials that work for the government are here to serve the public good. They are not here to tell us what we can and cannot do. That's not the way the Constitution of the United States was written, although you wouldn't know that these days. The government is more involved in your life today than they have been probably in the history of this country. And uh, the drug laws are just another extension of that uh, intrusion into your private life and into your private world. And uh, I will clearly go on record as saying that uh, just like the Cognitive Liberty uh, and Ethics Organization says that the government should be barred from coercing a peaceful person to take a pharmacotherapy drug and the government should be barred from telling a peaceful person what they can and cannot put inside of their body. And uh, that's all I have to say on that. You're listening to KOPN. This is Radio Orbit. Mike Hagan. It's 3 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, November 14th, and in just a few minutes we're going to get my interview on the air here with uh, Dr. Dennis McKenna. Before that, let's take care of a little bit, little bit of business. Uh, you're listening to 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri Source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio, it's community radio. KOPN, Columbia, Fulton, Millersburg, Tibet's, Speed, Bonnets Mill, Centralia, New Bloomfield, Wilton, Lupus, Lindbergh, Fulton, and I think I said Fulton twice, so that's a good time to stop. KOPN, 89.5 FM, and this is Radio Orbit. Let's, um, well, I don't want to start this, uh, I don't want to start this interview for a few more minutes. I think I have something here that I should probably play uh, to take care of some business, and that has to do with um, ah, a show that's coming up, actually, uh, Coming up this Friday, I said down at the Blue Note that Medeski Martin and Wood show last night was incredible. We've got another great. Uh, actually, I cannot. I cannot say how great this is going to be. That's against the rules here because we're. Um, we are sponsoring the show, so I cannot have any opinion on this show that's going to be playing next Friday at the Blue Note. However, I can tell you that I will be there, and uh, it's a uh, going to be another fun time at the Blue Note. So check it out. KOPN with a financial gift from the Blue Note is proud to present North Mississippi All-Stars. 
Friday, November 12th at 8.30 p.m. The North Mississippi All-Stars have a blues rock sound that is archival and innovative tempered by history and sparked by a sense of risk and experimentation. Information about this show is available at www.thebluenote.com or 573-874-1944. Okay, North Mississippi, uh, North Mississippi, North Mississippi All Stars uh, coming to the Blue Note next Friday night. So if you're interested in that, tickets are available. So stick around in just about five minutes. We'll get this started with a little bit of music here. Uh, the music, actually, this is something that I can talk about. All right, now we're ready here. Um, the music that you're going to hear, I'm going to play three or four songs during this, uh, during this piece with Dennis McKenna. The music comes from a CD that is called Journey Through the Spheres. And uh, Journey Through the Spheres was a project that a group called the Novelty Group, actually uh, uh, for this particular thing was called the Novelty Project. Well, it was a group of people uh, who belonged to a, uh, a bulletin board list group on the web that was originally begun many years ago to discuss the work of Terrence, Terrence and Dennis McKenna. And that group was called the Novelty List. And lots of people uh, got on that list and contributed information back and forth and discussed and debated different uh, ideas and different topics that the McKenna brothers uh, talked about during their careers. And, of course, Dennis's career is still alive and well. Terrence no longer with us. Uh, died in April of 2000. Um, in any case, uh, Terrence had a brain tumor prior to his death, and the Novelty Project put this album together as a way to, uh, to raise money for the McKenna family to help Terrence pay for his uh, medical expenses. And there's some real cool stuff on here. So you'll be listening to this, uh, some cuts from Journey Through the Spheres, as we listen to this interview with Dennis McKenna. If you're interested in this CD, it is available. Dennis has a whole bunch of them in his basement that he would love to get rid of. I don't know what they cost, uh, but I know I can get them. So send me an email at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O. If you're interested in getting one of these CDs, uh, it's a, uh, a limited thing. There are only a certain number of them made, only a couple thousand of them made. And it's, it's uh, certainly was something that will become a collector's item in the future. Uh, in fact, it probably is right now. I'm sure that nobody even knows it exists. If people did, it would probably be worth a whole lot of money. Uh, in any case, so Journey of the Spheres is a real cool CD that was put together for Dennis, uh, I take that back, that was put together for Terrence McKenna when he was having medical issues uh, in the late 90s. And um, you'll be hearing a few tracks off of that tonight. And uh, that's exactly what I'm going to play right now. We'll get things going and we'll be back in a few minutes with my interview with Dennis McKenna. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. By the way, call me now if you want to, if you want that Fate Magazine subscription. Okay. So here we are, once again, gathered to contemplate. Uh, the forward rush toward the unspeakable, the historical ascent from the unknowable, and this very delicate moment of equilibrium, which is called the here and now. How are we doing? 
how are we doing in the here and now? What we all share, I think, is this belief that spirit is in ascent, that spirit is manifesting and moving toward completion. Some people don't like the word spirit. They think you have to have a philosophical and theological disputation going if you talk about spirit. Let's just define it here for practical purposes as consciousness. The feeling of being conscious is the feeling of the indwelling of spirit. to be is naked, singing in the rainforest, stoned and exalted, one with the souls of the ancestors, one with the Gaian spirit of the planet.
Welcome back to Radio Orbit. I'm Mike Hagan, your host as always, and tonight my guest is Dr. Dennis McKenna. Dr. McKenna has for over 30 years researched and investigated the philosophical, sociological, and ontological implications of psychedelic drugs and hallucinogenic plants and compounds. His doctoral work centered on ethnopharmacological investigations into the botany, chemistry, and pharmacology of ayahuasca and ukuhi, two tryptamine-based hallucinogens used by indigenous peoples in the northwest Amazon. Dr. McKenna is the author or co-author of many different books, including one I'm rereading right now called The Invisible Landscape, Mind, Hallucinogens, and the I Ching. He has been published in more professional journals and magazines and papers than I'm willing to go into right now, but the list is quite extensive, I assure you. He is currently the Director of Ethnopharmacology at the Hefter Research Institute and a co-founder of that organization. And uh, who knows what else Dennis McKenna is up to these days, but he's here with us tonight, and we're all very lucky to have him with us. So without further delay, Dr. Dennis McKenna, welcome to Radio Orbit. Dennis, thanks a whole lot for taking the time to talk to me and my audience tonight. Well, thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be there. Yep, it's great to have you, and we appreciate we're it. We're here while you're there, whatever. <laughs> That's right. We're uh, we're actually in Columbia, Missouri here, and we're talking to Dennis, and Dennis is uh, a little bit further north up there in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, if I, if I remember correctly. That's right. Marine on St. Croix. Ah, interesting. A little French name there, huh? Okay. Um, well, look, Dennis, we've got about an hour and a half to talk about uh, lots of different stuff here tonight, but I thought for... Um, Certainly some of my listeners are very familiar with you and the work that you've done over the years, but I probably have a certain element that also don't know a whole lot about some of the things that we'll be talking about tonight. So I thought that maybe right off the bat you could give us a little bit of background, just sort of who's Dennis McKenna and where did he come from and how did you get interested in all the stuff that you eventually uh, uh, eventually took you down your life's path? I mean, what, what, what led you to investigate hallucinogenic plants and compounds and these sorts of things? Oh, boy. <laughs> Well, that's a tall order, <clears throat> and it's a kind of a long story, and I don't know uh, how far you want to go into it. I, I guess uh, I, yeah, like a lot of people in my generation, in some ways I'm a child of the 60s. I was uh, in Haight-Ashbury in 1967 during the Summer of Love, hmm. and psychedelics were just beginning to come on the scene about that time and a lot of people were taking them including myself okay. um, but my path was a little different than most people's because I quickly became acquainted with uh, the tryptamines with DMT specifically okay. and uh, from that came uh, I quickly found out that that was the basis of uh, many hallucinogenic uh, plant preparations that were used in South America and uh, DMT phenomenologically seemed to me the the quintessent psychedelic you might say uh, the purest form of uh, the pure psychedelic experience and so hmm. um, it was it was a fascinating compound and that combined with the um, Ethnopharmacologic connection, you might say, um, made it made it all the more interesting because DMT is the basis in one way or another for most of the major hallucinogenic plants, uh, plant complexes, you might call them, that are used by indigenous people uh, in South America. 
So that was sort of how I got interested in it, was from a personal standpoint. Uh, another um, influential work at that time was Carlos Castaneda's first book, sure. um, The Teachings of Don Juan, <clears throat> which has been in a lot of ways discredited, or some of his subsequent books have been have been discredited, but the teachings of Don Juan was influential to me at that time because I that brought in the connection to shamanism and the way that these things were used for essentially uh, what you might call magical technologies. Hmm. Hmm. And so that's what uh, led me into it. And uh, those of you who are familiar with my brother and the Invisible Landscape, or the other book that he wrote called uh, True Hallucinations sure. um, will know the story of, of what led us down to the Amazon in 1971 for the first time. We were in search of this uh, Witoto uh, hallucinogen uh, called Ukue. Ukue. Uh, not something you're likely to find at your local health food store. <laughs> it's um, rather obscure plant preparation made from varola which is a member of the uh, nutmeg family. Hmm. And we were interested in uh, ukuhe because we thought it might provide a more prolonged form of the tryptamine experience. It contains DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT. And uh, we were interested in it because it was an orally active form. Okay. And that's really what led me to go to the Amazon for the first time and, and get into this. And, and then, you know, from that, my interest in, uh, in uh, not only the hallucinogens, but all the, all the plants that are used by these indigenous people has sort of taken off from there. Okay. So, you know, in a nutshell, that's how I got started. I don't know if you want my whole life story. Well, actually, actually, probably not. <laughs> I'm sure we we have a lot of time, but I don't know that we have that much. And I know that right, a whole but lot. that's that's what got me into it. And and then I returned in uh, in 1981 to uh, to Peru. Originally, the work was done in Colombia, but I returned in 1981 to Peru mm -hmm. and pursued the investigation of Ukue and ayahuasca uh, for my doctoral work. Uh, that was basically my thesis, was to investigate the chemistry and the pharmacology of both of those uh, tryptamine hallucinogens. Okay. Now, when you went down, the, when you went down to the Amazon uh, initially, when you went down there in 1971, uh, I, I want to clarify, uh, at that time, were you already familiar with the uh, with with the chemistry or the chemical composition of of these substances, or or was it, or were you guys still investigating from a, a, a recreational standpoint? Or well, we were sort of in the transition at that time. We thought we knew a lot mm -hmm. about the chemistry and the pharmacology of these substances, but in fact, we didn't know very much okay. <laughs> and, you know um, in, in, in a way my whole professional life from that time has been in a sense filling in the gaps or learning from that experience and trying to puzzle all this out so yeah we had a we had a kind of a loose grasp of the chemistry and pharmacology 
of the plants. We knew much less than we like to think we did. Okay. All right. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a good little bit of background, I think. So at least we know um, how you originally got involved in this and stuff. And um, right. All right, Dennis. You mentioned that DMT was sort of this. Uh, holy grail of hallucinogens of sorts, or a very pure form, at least, of the hallucinogenic uh, compounds. Uh, what, what, what are these tryptamines, actually? Closest you could come, the closest you can come, really, to true psychedelics, whatever that whatever may that, mean, right. but in the sense of the phenomenological picture, the phenomenological realm that they unfold seems closer to the archetypal notion of the true psychedelic. Okay. Now, unlike LSD, for example, which is not really a true psychedelic, although it has a similar kind of activity, but it's uh, it has other aspects of it that are somewhat uh, less rich, I guess you could say, right. than the tryptamine. So things like psilocybin, for example, or mescaline, or or. Or well, psilocybin is a tryptamine, okay, but mescaline okay. is not. Okay. Mescaline is a phenethylamine. Okay. So it's a completely different class of, of biochemistry, much closer to things like 2CB, for example. Okay. And LSD, of course, is a... Is a uh is a, is a man-made compound. So. Yeah, LSD is an indole like a tryptamine, but in, in some sense you could consider it a tryptamine, but it's a, it's a highly elaborated tryptamine on the molecular level. Okay, all right. As opposed to DMT, which is, uh, which is a sim which you might call a simple tryptamine. Now, DMT actually exists in the human brain in, in small amounts in, in a normal human being, I think, doesn't it? Yes, that's true. It exists in the brain, in the pineal gland, and in the adrenal glands. Interesting. And uh, we don't have a very good idea what it's doing there, but it's, uh, it's probably got some function. That's one of the uh, areas that should be investigated. Okay. All right, interesting. Well... It's been suggested, for example, that uh, endogenous levels of DMT uh, and beta-carbolines, which is another class of molecules that, uh, that potentiate the actions of DMT, it's okay. been suggested that endogenous uh, DMT and beta-carbolines may modulate dream states huh. and play a role in the, uh, in the daily rhythms of the pineal gland which has uh, quite a bit to do with regulating dream states and sleep and so on. Right, right, and melatonin and all that. Okay, listen, um, I mentioned earlier uh, when I was doing the introduction that I was rereading uh, The Invisible Landscape right now, and in, the, in that book, you and your brother uh, talk about the significance, and you mentioned it just briefly before, the significance culturally and, and, and on many different levels of, of the shaman. And uh, you mentioned that you actually went down to South America yourself um, to kind of find out about these things, but um, for those who are unfamiliar, what is shamanism, and, and what really is a shaman? Right, right. Well, actually, that, that's good. That goes back to what we were talking about before, um, which was what led me down there, and part of the fascination with the, the fact that these plants were used by indigenous peoples always in a shamanic context, which we'll, which we'll get to in a minute. But uh, we felt that 
you know, although we were fascinated by the tryptamine experience, my brother and I, we also felt that uh, the contemporary cultural manifestation of it in the form of the hippies and Haight-Ashbury and Tim Leary and all that all that stuff, mm -hmm. you know, although probably healthy on a cultural level, we felt that they were sort of missing the point. Okay. And so then here was a whole tradition of indigenous peoples, millennia old, that had been using these things. So naturally we thought, well, you know, we should really go down and talk to the experts. If we want to understand the psychedelic experience, we That's should right. talk to some people that have been doing it for a while. That's right. It makes And sense. so that's where you come to the shamans. So, so anyway, that is what led us to go down there so that we could... Uh, not only get the plants, but interface with people who who might know about it, and that's where shamanism comes in. And shamanism is a is a uh, probably the oldest form of religious practicing um, that there is, and it's really. You know, in indigenous cultures and archaic cultures, there's a, not really a distinction between medicine and magic mm -hmm. and religion and uh, ritual. It's all sort of uh, amalgamated together. And shamanism, in a, in a nutshell, is uh, the mastery of techniques of ecstasy. Uh, a lot of what the shaman does is practice various disciplines, which may or may not involve taking drugs, although in the New World, hallucinogens are very much a, a part of shamanism, but it's not the case all over the world. Okay. Uh, but there are other techniques that are practiced, like flagellating oneself or putting yourself in various extreme conditions, frenzied drumming, dancing, mm -hmm. various uh, techniques that are designed to elicit an altered state of consciousness. Okay, okay. And so the shaman is really the navigator in this realm of altered states. And uh, as such, he acts more or less as an intercessor for uh, his people, his village, his tribe. He works to cure people, diagnose disease, find where the game is going to be next spring, uh, you know, all sorts of functions within the society. It's basically a, as a seer or someone with a connection to the supernatural and, and able to, you know, navigate in these, in these extra-dimensional realms. And in the New World, hallucinogens are very much a part of this practice, probably the, the primary one probably being ayahuasca, uh, which is really sort of at the center of a whole universe of medicinal plants in some ways. But ayahuasca is kind of the primary, in, in the pharmacopoeia, kind of the, the primary intelligence of the of the uh, medicinal plant realm and the one through which the shaman connects to the natural world. Okay. That is an idea of shamanism. All right, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We're about 25 minutes into my interview with Dennis McKenna from a couple of weeks ago. Hope you're enjoying it. We'll have more in just a few minutes. We're going to continue with some music from uh, the CD, the benefit CD for Terrence McKenna, Music from the Spheres. Here's some more from that back in a minute with more Dennis McKenna. This is Radio Orbit, KOPN. Thank uh -huh. 
It's not, as Milton said, the God who hung the stars like lamps in heaven, but it's the God of the oceans and the jungles and the ice caps and the rivers and the glaciers and the great schools of fish and the deserts. And it's the goddess of the earth. It's the mind of organic life on this planet. shamanism can attest to and is built on is the news that there is 
a sentient, minded, caring entity that surrounds and holds the planet in its hands, in its heart. Call it Gaia, call it God, call it the spirit of nature. It doesn't matter what you call it. It transcends the rational apprehension of higher primates. ask a little bit of a follow-up you, you mentioned that when 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 the shaman goes into this particular state of ecstasy it right. is typically with purpose they go in there looking for uh information of some sort in other, in other words like you said to to come to heal perhaps a member of the tribe or to find out where the game is going to be in the spring so 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 they're going into these states and coming out with practical information well yeah or at least what they see as practical information. Yeah. Like probably the, the okay. classic application of it is in curing, mm -hmm. where, you know, the shaman, for example, in South America, the curandero or the ayahuascaro can take ayahuasca, and uh, ayahuasca becomes a diagnostic tool, in a sense, for that person. He can look at the patient or feel the patient or somehow get a vibe from... Uh, a person that he's treating and intuit what the problem might be and what to do about it. Huh. Um, and often, you know, in the context of at least of, uh, you know, South American shamanism, the, the causes are attributed to magical causes, witchcraft and that sort of thing. Right. And so the solutions are also often magical. A prayer, a song, an incantation, sometimes very often in fact medicinal plants of various sorts and that that's another way in which the shaman uses ayahuasca as a way to um, actually uh, suss out the properties of medicinal plants often by using them as admixtures to ayahuasca okay. the shaman in south america the ayahuascaros have a notion they talk about uh, Plantus K. Insanian, plants that teach. Okay. And so they have this notion of plant teachers. Is, you know, they don't really understand it the way, you know, a chemist or a pharmacologist might understand it. Uh, you know, to them, these plants are spirits, and they have, you know, this inherent um, healing, healing energy. Um, you know, the, these points of view don't really exclude each other, but mm -hmm. uh, it's a different way of looking at things and a different way of understanding disease, you know. 
Yet the shaman can also, like you say, without having the sort of uh, traditional uh, education on chemistry and these sorts of things, um, they can actually draw you the chemical compound, though, right? Show you what the molecular structure looked like. Mm, none or, of them that I ever talked to okay, were okay. able to pull okay, that I, one off. I could, I, I'd, actually, I'd actually read something. I, uh, I would be very impressed. Ah, interesting. There, uh, and and this, this may be off topic. Where did you get that idea? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a Stanford uh, ethnobotanist. His name is Jeremy Narby. Yes, and uh, and and he and I think in one of his books or in a book that he had written that and I may also be completely off base, Dennis. Well, no, I know Jeremy, and okay. he's done interesting work. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, if he's got a uh, shaman <laughs> that can that can write down the chemical structures of any plant that you bring to him, <laughs> I need to talk to that. <laughs> well, I will, uh, I will, I'll have to double-check my information on that one, Dennis. So, any, anyway, re regardless, th there seems to be some sort of uh, communication or transfer of information between the shaman and the, and the, uh, the plant compounds that they're ingesting, huh? Well, that, I think that's definitely true. Right, right. You know, I mean, all of this, you know, experimenting with psychoactive plants and medicinal plants as well. I mean, the fact that plants have are biologically active is something that we've known probably since we, you know, before we were re even human. I mean, there, in fact, there's plenty of evidence that, uh, you know, primates, other types of animals use plants both as medicines and often... Um, as intoxicants. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has been well studied. So, so on the on the evolutionary level, on the genetic evolutionary level, you know, our use of plants as medicines is, uh, you know, essentially a huge uncontrolled experiment that's been going on for hundred thousand years, a million years. We don't know, and you know. The, the the chemical diversity that you find in the plant kingdom is vast, right. and it's I think it's safe to say that there is, you know, somewhere in nature there's a molecule that uh, probably interacts with every known receptor that we've so far identified in the genome. Hmm. Um, the trick is to find them, right. or you know, to to understand this. But I think. I think an aspect of this is that we have, you know, human species has evolved immersed in a matrix of chemical interactions. Right. You know, we tend to think of ourselves as distinct entities. You know, that we, we, we have a sense of self and, and the boundaries of the self end with the skin and, <laughs> and you have the self and then everything out there right, right. that you interact with right. um, but it seems to me that it's it's really an illusion it's more like we're semi-permeable membranes and organisms are always immersed in this chemical soup this chemical ecological soup if you will mm -hmm. and in the case of the human species that involves plant secondary compounds sure. uh, you know whether they be drugs or nutrients or you know hallucinogens or other types of uh, of molecules sure you know it's part of human evolution to constantly be immersed in these things and we are even now even though we're 
know, largely separated from nature, you can't really get away with it yeah. from it. You know, I mean, if you eat, you can't get away <laughs> from it. It's interesting that it does seem that for at least our historical period, there seems to be this separation from nature, this idea that man is separate from nature and, uh, and uh, not really a part of nature, not part of the natural world. And, uh, but it's, it's really an illusion. Absolutely. In fact, uh, and, and it's no longer, you know, in the realm of New Age science or, you know, it sounds la-di-da, but, you know, we know now... Uh, you know, through scientific means that the human brain, you know, generates a magnetic field, the human heart generates a magnetic field, all, all, of, these, uh, all of these things extend from the body and interact with all the other fields all around them. And, right, and, all uh, sorts of electromagnetic energies and all sorts of chemicals. Yeah, and, also, and biological, you know, sure. Uh, the releasing of molecules, the taking in of molecules. Right. Um, you know, one of the reasons that plants elaborate, I mean, probably the main reason that plants make all these secondary compounds is they are used as a way for the plants to interact with and regulate their environment, a way to interact with other organisms in the environment, including humans. And, uh, you know, plants famous botanist once said plants substitute biosynthesis for behavior hmm. and if you think about that that's a profound observation sure plants don't really behave the way that animals do they can't flee they're usually rooted to the ground they can't run away they can't fight in the conventional way but they can through molecular modulation or molecular messages, which is essentially what these secondary compounds are. They can interact with everything else in their environment, from bacteria in the soil to fungi to, uh, you know, herbivores that might eat the leaves to humans that might uh, manufacture drugs out of them. I mean, you know, they have this ability. Essentially, that is their means of communication mm -hmm. so I think that's an that's an that's uh, you know an interesting perception it's maybe a little far out but basically scientifically defendable and yet I think the shaman is able to approach very much the same experience on an experiential level and so without gas chromatographs and mass spectrometers and the kind of things that, you know, we think we need to study these things, mm -hmm. they approach it on a much more intuitive and, in a sense, what you might call organoleptic level, uh, on a sensory level. And they can tell things about the properties of plants that, uh, you know, uh, ordinary mortals like me might need a whole laboratory to get to the same place Interesting. and would still be missing a lot right 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 well you know it's almost it's almost the uh it the, the analogy to me it, it kind of it's it's cultural in, na in, in nature in that, for example, the shaman, when, when I think of a shaman, I, I sometimes think, I was asked one time, what's the difference between a shaman and a priest? And, for example, comparing a shaman to, to, to a priest in, 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 in a Western right. culture, right? And I, and I thought about that. That one's easy. Yeah, and I'd say, well, it was basically the sh shaman is an experiential uh, thing as opposed to a socially ordained 
thing. That was the first thing I thought, at least, that the, the priest was a social ordination um, that really anybody could accomplish as long as they just uh, right. went, went to the right school or something, you know. However, but the shaman is actually something that is experiential. Right. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, a priest usually, when I think of priest, I think of someone who represents some kind of ecclesiastical organization or there's some sort of infrastructure, you know, behind a priest and there's an organized church of some kind and it tends to be a much later incarnation, Mm -hmm. you know, of religious practitioners. But the shaman is probably the most archaic of the religious practitioners and and as a result completely idiosyncratic i mean there are shamanic traditions but even within those traditions you know there's great variation in in individual practice um so the shaman is a much less informal type of uh, or a much more informal type of you know intercessory to uh to the supernatural to the beyond if you will that a priest is and as you say much more experiential uh and much more practically oriented much more hands-on about it Mm -hmm. and and an aspect of uh, shamanism that almost always comes in is it's not really separate from medicine um you know the rituals the incantations the applications of medicinal plants different types of things it all it all kind of runs together in shamanism but the notion of treating or healing or doing those sorts of things is is very much found in shamanism and not so much in priest priestcraft although it it is in some but it's not an invariable thing right 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 okay well let, hey, let's go back for a second to talk about the, the this this plant person communication that's going on. Okay. And, and regardless of whether it's whether it's in a, in a in a shamanistic context or not, um, uh-huh. I, I'm I'm interested in, in what what you've learned over the years about, about that. Do we have any idea of how that's actually happening? Um, uh, how Those chemical interactions. Yeah. You mean? Yeah. How what is happening? Well, how for example when we use the shaman as the example when he goes into trance and comes out of that trance with um, a new concoction of some new roots and leaves and something to boil together in order to solve a problem for, for one of the members of the tribe right. that, that information comes to him through what mechanism? Huh. <laughs> I, mean, I mean do we have any well, idea? I'm, I'm, are there theory, I, I guess I don't think anybody knows mm, yeah. I mean I think that it's I think that it's an intuitive thing. There's an interesting, uh, you know, bunch of things going on right now in neuroscience that are are kind of uh, leading in this direction, although it seems to me a very sort of crude instrument to understand what's going on. But there's a, you know, now that we have these various brain imaging techniques mm-hmm. like PET and uh, functional MRI and uh, uh, SPECT and all these different basically neural imaging techniques that let you see what the brain is doing in real time uh, on some level, at least what parts of the brain are active mm-hmm. uh, at a certain time. So a lot of some investigators have gotten excited about this and decided to look at people in deep states of meditation or mystical experience 
um, or other types of altered states, including psychedelic drugs. And, you know, what seems to be emerging is that uh, in these altered states, um, whatever the cause, whatever the trigger, you get certain, you get similar brain areas lighting up, mm-hmm. basically. And, uh, where this might lead into shamanism, it seems to me shamanism is seems to me in some way to be the other side of that coin in the sense that shamanism is essentially a technique for creating and manipulating altered states. Okay. And so, you know, to apply some of these neuroimaging methodologies with an experienced shaman might give you a greater degree of control uh-huh. and ability to alter the situation than if you're just looking at people meditating um, or other things, although that is that is useful too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, shamanism might end up being, there are various what you might call technologies of the sacred Mm. is one way you could think of it and shamanism is one of those along with yoga and uh, you know meditation and other types of induced altered state Um, and these technologies of the sacred if we're ever gonna you know I mean it's one thing to use neuroimaging and make pictures of what your brain is doing when you're in a meditative state or an altered state. But what are we really going to do with that? I mean, are we going to, you know, somehow is this, are we trying to lay the foundations for a technology that will eventually be able to use these techniques? Um, And for that, I think you have to look to shamanism and the other, you know, primarily shamanism, but the other um, techniques that people have practiced through the ages. Yeah, it's interesting that we we tend to think of technology in physical terms only. Technology has to be a machine or a computer or something like that. That's Um, true, but it's a misconception. I agree. I agree fully. Well, and and isn't isn't that the hundred thousand dollar question that you know we have all of these technolo- technologies like you mentioned this neural imaging and all these different things and what are we going to use them for? That's what it comes down to. The technology is neither here nor there, good or bad or ugly. It's a matter of the implementation right. and the. Well, that's a very good question. I mean, what are we going to use them for? We're frenetically inventing all of these things, and. Uh, you know, it it is neither good nor bad, but human behavior can be extremely good or bad. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and I, I tend to worry about uh, some of the uses that these technologies might be put to. You know, it seems that uh, every breakthrough, every advance in science uh, or technology can be uh, can be subverted to you know less than less than good uses so i wonder a lot about this neuroimaging stuff as an example mm-hmm. you know it's certainly within the realm of possibility that within 5 to 10 years you know we might have machines that can read your thoughts right, right. you know and is that a good thing or is it a bad thing or you know do we do we get to be screened by telepathic machines every time we climb on an airplane? I mean, is that what 
our society is coming to. Yeah, there's there's already been stories in the mainstream press, and, and I, I've seen they call it brain fingerprinting, and they're already talking about that sort of thing. And yeah, exactly, brain fingerprinting, right, right. which can be used for all sorts of marvelous things and all sorts of dubious things. Yeah, I've come to I've come to realize a distinction between the words intellect and intelligence, and I think that's a a primary thing going on these days is that we, you know, we have these incredible intellects that are that are capable of, of, you know, incredible feats of engineering and design and and but all little all, intelligence. Yeah, but little intelligence and 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 it seems like it seems like intellect. All intellect wants to do is ask the question: Can it be done? Is it possible? You know, and, right. and if it is, just freaking do it. You know. Right. Yet intelligence seems to. I don't know, maybe it comes from the heart, I actually think, and, and I think it's required to temper that intellect because we have this, this out-of-control intellect right now, um, and it just uh, doesn't seem to be, have the wisdom behind it to use it in a, in a, in a manner that's, that's beneficial or appropriate for, for the whole, for the, in, in a holistic uh, uh, sense as opposed to an individualistic one, you know? Yes, that's true. That's true. All right. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. It's just about 4 o'clock. I'll take a quick break here and jump in before we finish out this incredible interview with Dennis McKenna. I hope you're all listening to this and uh, chilling out while you're listening, as I am. Uh, you know, as I listen to this, it's funny when I do these interviews because I, I do them and then I edit them and stuff, but I don't really have a good chance to listen fully until I get on the air and I'm just kind of sitting back, uh, babysitting the board here, and listening to this interview. And it's the first time I've really listened to it closely since I actually, uh, since I actually did the interview. And um, boy, I hope uh, I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as I am. Dennis is something else, and he's uh, probably one of the top five uh, uh, ethnopharmacologists on the planet. And um, he's done some amazing things in his past, and he's doing amazing things right now. So I hope you're digging it. And if, you, if you're not familiar with Terrence or Dennis McKenna, go check out some of their books, uh, some of the stuff that they've done in the past, Invisible Landscape, Archaic Revival. Uh, just go to Amazon or uh, one of those places and put in Terrence McKenna or Dennis McKenna and uh, pick up one of their books. The guys are just absolutely outstanding and uh, extraordinary information that people really need to be aware of. Uh, so, anyway, we'll be back to that in a minute. Uh, you're listening to KOPN 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri Source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio, and it's also the home of Radio Orbit, serving Columbia and all points around Mid-Missouri. We'll be back in a minute. This is a little bit more music from uh, music, uh, the journey through the spheres, actually. Again, uh, the tribute to Terrence McKenna. Enjoy this. We'll be back with Dennis in just a few more minutes. feeling pretty comfortable here show me what you are for yourself show me what you really are well immediately the temperature drops black draperies begin to lift and there's an organ tone straight out of the Bach B minor mass that shakes the room and after about 30 seconds of it you say enough already They seem to have been waiting.
comfortable here show me what you are for yourself show me what you really are well immediately the temperature drops black draperies begin to lift and there's an organ tone straight out of the Bach B minor mass that shakes the room and after about 30 seconds of it you say enough already out there that the termite mind of man, I think, is not ready to, to handle.
universe is full of things no human mind can cognize or apprehend. There are truths out there that the termite mind of man, I think, is not ready to, to handle. You know, we're an incredibly hubristic species. I mean, we think that we dominate nature huh. and that nature is there to serve us. And, uh, you know, particularly in the West, you get this attitude, which you know, has partly led to the separation of nature from nature, you know, that we experience. I mean, I think I think that we're profoundly, you know, psychologically wounded uh, species, or at least uh, at least this culture is because of its separation from nature, and it's sort of, you know, nature is to be subjugated, dominated, and and brought into the use of man. And, uh, you know, I think now we're beginning to reap the, uh, the consequences of that. So, I mean, I think that I really think that, you know, the main challenge for the next couple of decades, it's not the war on terrorism. That's a distraction. You know, what it really is, is global climate change. And... Uh, you know, abrupt global climate change is now in a number of models certainly a possibility. And uh, we're very slow to wake up to this. And the consequences will be enormous. Yeah, yeah, it sure it sure does appear that way. And there, there, are, there, there are changes taking place, you know, astounding changes taking place in all these different areas of the, of the globe and uh, some places, you know, it is global change, climate change. And the homeostasis is being tipped. Yes, yes, That's the yes. thing. Up till now, there have been homeostatic, you know, processes that have tended to even everything out. So right. that, you know, and that still is going on. I mean, the Earth is, I mean, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't. Right. The Earth is a extremely complex regulatory system. But at what point do you you know, reach a point where it tips over into some other state of metastability. Right, that tipping point. That might not be that hospitable to life, for mm -hmm. example. I mean, the earth will be fine. Right. We might not we find might it not so be. comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it, it reminds me of the, of the in, in, in chemistry, you know, we have the, uh, the term of equilibrium and in equilibrium, you have a you have a system that's at balance. You know, it's it's right. sta it's stable and it's pretty strong actually, too, relatively speaking. And and to move to move a uh, to move a, a situation from equilibrium into disequilibrium, relatively speaking, again requires a significant amount of energy in order to do that. You know, um, whereas if you have a chaotic system or a system that's in disequilibrium, sometimes a very small amount of energy in any particular vector might bring about a completely different new equilibrium, you know? Right. That you that's might not even expect sometimes. That seems to be the way it works. Right. You know, and you just hope, have to hope that the new 
equilibrium, whatever it is, is uh, you know is sustainable, is uh, habitable, and that sort of thing. But you know, so I think that uh, you know, I think that this will emerge. I mean, it's 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 hard to bring it to the center of public attention or public discourse because climatic changes, geologic changes, all these long-term changes, although they can happen quickly, they still happen on, you know, scales of decades before you really begin to see the effects. Mm -hmm. And governments can't operate on decades. I mean, the two presidential terms is only eight years. Right. You know, so it's very hard for conventional institutions to really respond to this stuff you, you know they're slow and inefficient and they don't really know how to deal with it and yet if something is not done you know if things are just neglected eventually it will be irreversible right yeah and, and it will be much more of a crisis Oh, yeah, and so in the usual way that we do things, this is probably w <laughs> what will happen. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the old the old oil commercial: "Pay me now or pay me later." Yeah, and, right. You know, if there's much to be paid later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sure seems like that's that's the road run, and and and, it, and you're right. The, the way that all of the institutions, including the business institutions, and and the the the, the short term is where their bread is buttered, mm -hmm. and uh, and and. In that sort of a situation, it's going to be very difficult to get them to look at these things on a larger scale. I agree completely. Yeah, it's very hard to uh, to do that. So we'll have to see what happens. It's uh, it's interesting. I, I I look at some of the things that are happening around the planet, not not just geopolitically, but also. Uh, uh, like you mentioned, the, the, the earth changes that are taking place climatically and geologically and volcanism and earthquakes and all these things. And it it's almost like the earth herself is trying to give wake-up calls slowly but surely louder and louder and eventually it's almost like it's going to have well, to start. some have you know some claim that this is what's going on i mean that sort of is the scenario of the invisible landscape mm -hmm. and the invisible landscape um you know is really a i mean there's a lot of apocalyptarian energy focused around 2012 sure. or or in that area. I mean, the Mayan calendar comes to an end. Um, you know, other types of cycles, I can't name them all, but there is a lot of focus on that era. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I have major reservations about the about the predictions in the invisible landscape, right. you know, 35, 40 years after writing it, 30 years, I guess. Um, but it is, you know, the way things are trending, it seems that there's going to be some kind of major shift and it won't be too long. So, you know, 2012 might be about right. It feels about right. Yeah, it's, you know, it, regardless of time frame, it sure does feel that way. And I think that mm -hmm. there are a whole lot of people that are recognizing that. That that, and and and, and quite frankly, it's self-evident if you if you're paying attention that 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 in in many many areas of human endeavor there are just unsustainable situations going on right now right this it's not sustainable the way it is right. something has to change and you know to say usually when that happens on a large scale in history it's not so good for the people that happen to be alive but uh, 
you know, I mean, I suppose it could be a transition toward a better state. Right. We can always hope for that. Right. We can hope for that, I guess. You know, with since we're talking about that, um, let me ask you something uh, with with your your historical hindsight. And I'm I was born in in 1964, so I don't have a great uh, a great knowledge or at least personal experience of, of remembering the 70s and stuff but 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 as I've gotten older I've read a whole lot from uh, from people that were w- who I would consider prevalent during that time but let me ask you did what happened it seemed like something happened you know there was a tremendous amount of interest in the hallucinogenic substances for example there were a lot of people that were experimenting with them there were um, there was a tremendous amount of actual uh, uh, professional research that was going on uh, that was done with um, uh, with great positive effect there were lots of uh, documented cases in the medical journals there were big-time doctors that were prominent doctors in some of these major institutions that were getting really good results in treating psychological disorders and trying in fact they were using them themselves in a lot of cases and recommending them to their friends and family and and then next thing you know the whole thing gets shut down and it seemed to me like we were almost there. There was like a breakthrough was there. And all of you guys, including yourself and Terrence and uh, Leary and Dr. John Lilly and Robert Wilson and all these guys were like, it seemed like we were almost there. And then and then right, something but, happened. Well, I think what happened was that, you know, um, it was a culture clash, basically. I mean, you know, psychedelic drugs are very dangerous in the sense that, you know, they make you have funny ideas. And funny ideas are always a threat to the establishment, to the powers that be in some sense, because, you know, if if it questions, if it makes you question your place in the in the machine or in the universe or whatever the context you care to define, you know that's not really encouraged and uh you know so i think that was what it was about i think that uh you know the phenomenon that was the, i mean the problem was there was you know on one on one side there was the science going on you know which was promising i agree with you and it was essentially shut down as a casualty of the of the culture clash when it, it again it became about you know this is sending the wrong message to our children that old chant you know oh, right. and uh, with uh, Leary out there being very public about it and encouraging people to to take it more or less under uncontrolled conditions I think that was alarming mm-hmm. to a lot of people and so there was you know in the usual Calvinist tradition that permeates this country's history, you know, there had to be a clampdown. People were having too much fun, basically, and uh, people were, you know, it was it was getting too edgy, and so there was a perceived need to uh, create some kind of clampdown to try to suppress it. And of course, you know, as the history of drugs tells us every time you try to suppress a drug it never works right. you know because people have allegiances to these things right. and uh and interesting so it, word it didn't really price. succeed yeah. but it did sort of drive the whole thing underground and you know unfortunately a casualty of that was a lot of the science which is 
just now, sort of, you know, 30 years later, we're beginning to revisit it. And uh, you can do science with hallucinogens. You can even do clinical studies, but uh, it's it's much more difficult, you know, on the regulatory level to get permission and so on to do it, although you can do it. And, in fact, the Hefter and other organizations are doing it. So, you know, but it's a long, slow slog to get to that place. Uh, yeah, 30, th- over 30 years, like, you, like, like you're saying. Yeah. Well, hey, that, that that's actually a good time to uh, to maybe talk. We, we've done a we've done a real nice uh, historical view of a lot of this stuff. Maybe let's talk about what's going on today. What are you guys up to at at the Hefter Research Institute, and uh, what uh, where are we with all this stuff? Maybe we could talk about that a little bit, Dennis. Well, um, yeah, the Hefter the Hefter Research Institute is is doing well, although we always need money, and but we've been doing pretty well in terms of raising money through donations to support various psychedelic research projects. Um, Probably the one that people might be most interested in is the one that's going on right now at UCLA uh, with Dr. Charles Grobe is the principal uh, investigator on it. And it's a it's a study with psilocybin in terminal cancer patients. Interesting. Uh, basically, uh, an attempt with uh, better experimental design to revisit some of the earlier uses where uh, LSD or other things, in this case psilocybin, can be used to help people uh, come to terms with the fact that they're dying. Mm. And try to ease them through that transition. It's also being used for pain control uh, in the same protocols because earlier experiments showed that uh, with LSD showed that um, not only could these things relieve anxiety in patients that were dying, they could also control pain Hmm. uh, sort of as a long-term side effect and the amounts of narcotics that they needed to control pain was much reduced. So that's what this study at UCLA is, is uh, basically to see if uh, uh, psilocybin can be used to uh, to help people in the dying process. Hmm, that's an and there is actually, um, I think there's recruiting going on if people are interested, if people meet the criteria for the study. Um, then I believe they're still looking for patients. Huh, okay. And and who let me ask you a question and I and I ask this only because um I have a little bit of historical knowledge regarding some of the uh covert and overt research projects, you know, that our government has been involved in and stuff like that. One of my concerns when I when I when I hear about um, the research being done at universities and such is things like informed consent and things like that. If people are interested in this stuff, um, do they? How transparent are the uh, um, are the are the organizations and the funders of of of, the, of these projects that we're talking about? How transparent? Yeah. In other words, do we know where the do they, if if a person wants to get involved, do they know where the funding is coming from? Is it you know is it a CIA op or is it you know what I mean? Or oh, or, you mean for psychedelic research? Right. Right. 
In other words... Well, I don't know. Was, uh, you I know, can you tell know. you that the Hefter is not funded oh, no, no, and by I, and the CIA. No, and I, cer- I certainly didn't mean to imply that. <laughs> by, we by should be so lucky. Yeah, you'd have a lot more money than you do. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I didn't mean to imply that by any means. I just... Uh, my, my point was that historically, back some of the early research that was being done in the 50s and oh, the well, 60s and stuff... Oh, some of the early research. Right, that's, oh, that was yeah. going on. And Extremely I, and, sinister. Right, uh-huh. right, right. Yeah. And, I just, and I just wanted to clarify that the stuff that's happening today is much more transparent, and that we do, and that people can, at least if they're if they're curious about that, they can find out who's behind the research oh, or yes. whatever. Well, any work that we're doing is pretty transparent, but you know what we're doing is small potatoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's great that the Hefter is able to do these things, but there needs to be you know more of it, mm-hmm. and um, you know potential. I mean, there have been studies, for example, with psilocybin and obsessive compulsive disorder uh, at the University of Arizona we helped fund that although they have other funding sources as well and there is a lot of stuff going on in Europe particularly uh, Franz Wollenweider's work mm-hmm. in Zurich mm-hmm. uh, he is a member of the Hefter board and has some interesting things going on involving neuroimaging with uh, psilocybin and that kind of thing Okay. You know, so so it does. It, it is it is going on, but there needs to be more of it, and and I'm sure um, I'm sure it still goes on in the government too. Just because you don't hear about these mm-hmm. programs, uh, you know, MK Ultra and, and similar things that went on in the '60s. Sure. I mean, those those have not gone away. They've just morphed into things that are probably unimaginably worse. Right, isn't that the truth? I mean, there's a lot of interest, uh, for example, in using things like MDMA and other types of things as chemical biological warfare agents, mm. um, you know, for crowd control, the whole non-lethal weapon um, interest of the Pentagon has a lot to do with psychopharmacology. Wow, I didn't realize that. I've seen a lot of the uh, uh, non-lethal weapons, the physical ones, you know, bean bags and this sort of thing, but I didn't realize that they were doing it on a pharmacological level, too. Sure. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm just, I can't believe I didn't uh, imagine it. So. <laughs> I mean, in fact, the... Repu- the um not the Republicans, sorry. <laughs> little Freudians. Yeah, little there. Freudians. Your Freudian uh, slip is the, showing. The Dennis. Russians uh, in that uh, in that terrorist uh, attack on the theater, which was a year yes, or so ago. Yes. Eventually, they brought them down, and about a lot of innocent people too were killed. About three hundred people died, but they flooded the theater with an opiate gas of some kind and that was just basically knocked everybody out so they're working on that and and our government's working on even more creative things I've seen things on the internet that Mm -hmm. would curl your hair yeah yeah unfortunately (laughs) I hate to say it but I've I've seen things too and I, I We'll just have to see, like we said before, I have to see what they what what, what, in, what in they fact, do with these uh, things. In fact, at this point, I, I should probably put in a plug for my friends because there's a very informative website that your listeners might be used, interested in. It's called the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. Okay. 
Do you know that one? Yeah, I am familiar with it, actually. I think it's ccle.org. ccle.org. If you, if, if you go on the net, it's ccle.org. And uh, they track all this stuff. Um, the use of psychopharmaceuticals as warfare agents, uh, a lot of the controversies about neuroimaging, um, you know, I mean, it's a very useful, interesting website. Lots of good stuff. Okay, let's let's give that out one more time. That's www.ccle.org, and that's the center. I think so. Yeah, I think it is too. In fact, I'm going to log on r real fast right now just to make sure that that's correct. I think it is. The I know it's the Center for Cognitive, Cognitive Liberty. Liberty and Ethics, and right. if you do a Google on that, you'll get right there. Hey, um, while we're at it, let's also give out uh, the information um, for the Hefter Institute if people would like to find out what's going on there and maybe they decide that uh, it might be worthy of their of their benefit. So um, That's easy. Uh, the Hefter is uh, www.hefter.org. It's H-E-F-F-T-E-R. <laughs> okay, H-E-F-F-T-E-R.org. It's funny, I'm glad I went to the web to check, Dennis, because the C-C-L-E.org is the Consortium for Classical Lutheran Education. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Well, I'll, I'll get a correction here on that. Just Hang on. The Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. That is www.cognitiveliberty.org. And, Dennis, I think that's our cue to take a little break here. So we'll be back in a moment. This is Mike Hagan. My guest is Dennis McKenna. You're listening to Radio Orbit. All right. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's me again. Okay, uh, check it out. There's about another 20 minutes left of that interview. We're going to play a little music. My friend Casey just swung by the station here out and about at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, and he brought in a CD of a band called, what are they called, Casey? Echo Bass. And uh, they were at the Music Cafe this evening, and uh, I don't know if they're listening. Maybe they are, but anyway, real cool stuff. And uh, here it is on Radio Orbit KOPN. This is Echo Bass, thanks to Casey.
All right, so the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics at uh, cognitiveliberty.org and also the Hefter Research Institute at H-E-F-F-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Okay, um, so, yeah, interesting that, uh, again, the uses of these things on, on, on both sides of the spectrum is uh, uh, Another website <clears throat> that's worth mentioning, which you probably know about, but um, is arrowwood.org. Are you familiar with them? Yep, I'm familiar with them, but we can give yeah. out that address as well. That is a good one. It's a, it's a good archive of information about a lot of these psychedelic plants. Uh, everything from the scientific data to people's own experiences with them, and it's it's uh, it's generally well balanced and, and lots of good information there. Yeah, and I think that is actually uh, I want to say that it is www.erowid.org. Arrowwid. That's right. Arrowwid.org. Okay. Yeah, there's lots of interesting stuff there about uh, plants and drugs and mind and spirit and freedom and art and lots of different stuff there. So. All of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, that, bo- both of those yeah. are great sites. So. It's, a good, it's a good resource if you're interested in this, this topic. Okay. All right. What's, uh, so what's next on the, on the agenda for, um, for Dennis McKenna? What do you got planned? Uh, I know you, t- you mentioned off the air that you were planning a trip to Peru. Yeah, well, I am. Um, well, as a matter of fact, I I uh, had I have gotten a grant. I, I'm a faculty member at the University of Minnesota in uh, two departments: the Department of uh, Experimental and Clinical Pharmacology, uh, where I'm an adjunct professor. That means they don't pay you. Okay. <laughs> they allow you to <laughs> say you're affiliated with them. And I'm mm-hmm. also, and my day job is with the Center for Spirituality and Healing, okay. at the, which is uh, essentially the alternative, med, uh, alternative medicine program in the medical school, in the academic health center. And so through them, I got a grant uh, from a private foundation to look for Amazonian plants that might be used to treat schizophrenia or certain symptoms of schizophrenia. So I uh, suddenly, after having practically no grants all my life, I have this huge grant dropped on me. And um, so that's what I'm going to be doing for the next two or three years. Uh, You know, I make several trips to the Amazon. We're doing screening of various types up here and medicinal chemistry, isolation of any actives that we find that look promising and, and wow. like that. Wow, incredible. So, so you'll actually be uh, uh, traipsing through the jungle and just looking for different, uh, different plants? Basically. And, w- and will you well, have... Well, there's you have a lot. That's the first step. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I realize it's much more complicated than that, but w- um, will you have guidance? Uh, do you have guides, or will you be involved with any of the uh, indigenous people to help you? Or Oh, yes. Yeah, all of that. I have people on the ground in Peru that are, I've worked with before uh, with the university there, and, uh, um, you know, some botanists and ethnobotanists, and I'll be working with them, and I've worked in the area before, so 
in some way I know the ropes around huh. there, so I have local contacts. Right, I'm sure over the years. Pretty good support system. So, right. and but basically, yeah, it's uh, you know try to look at all sorts of sources of information, whatever's been published, and also just interview people and uh, and talk to people about what they use and try to come up with some things that are interesting. Uh, that sound interesting, that sound, you know, definitely, uh, hopefully, effective and not that well-known. I mean, that's that's the tricky part. There's a whole, you know, pharmacopoeia of plants that are used in the Amazon. A lot of them have been studied to death, so we don't, we want to, you know, go for the ones that are more obscure. And potentially there might be many, many more of these things, right? I mean, the, the number of species there is just out of yeah, the world, right? Absolutely. It's very high biodiversity. I mean, a, a lot of them have never been looked at, you know. So that's the trick. You have to kind of collect local knowledge and try to put that together with botanical and chemical knowledge, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, to come up with the candidates that are most likely to have some some new but active compound. Right, right. Hey, you know, that, that reminds me, we were talking earlier about, about the, the, sh the shaman and, and, and when, they, uh, when they, I think ayahuasca is actually a drink, is that correct? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a combination of a number of different uh, uh, plants? Or well, it's, it can be a combination of a number of different plants. It's, it's almost always a combination of at least two. Okay. And one of them is uh, the, the vine, the big jungle liana mm -hmm. called Banisteriopsis copy. And, and the other one, most commonly, are the leaves of uh, another plant, Psychotria viridis, um, that, is, uh, that the leaves are the source of the DMT. The DMT comes from that plant. Okay. And the Banisteriopsis supplies... Uh, another group of alkaloids called beta-carbolines mm -hmm. that are monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And so that's the mechanism of the oral activity of ayahuasca. Because DMT by itself is broken down by the enzyme monoamine oxidase. Okay. It never makes it through the blood-brain barrier. It never makes it past the gut and liver because the enzyme breaks it down. Ah, so but if otherwise you mix it with a plant that inhibits that enzyme, then it is protected and, and so uh -huh. DMT becomes orally active in that combination. So that combination had to... Okay, here, then, then here's, here's a question. How... Initially, somebody had to how did they figure yes, it out? How did they figure it out with with all of this biodiversity and stuff? That it seems it seems uh, statistically very hard to believe that they just got lucky. Well, that's a good question, my son. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody really knows, but right. you know, I mean, they will tell you that the plants talk to you, or that right. the plants teach you, uh -huh. and that you know this knowledge comes directly from them from and the if you itself. dismiss that as uh, so much mumbo jumbo then you're sort of okay so how did they do it right 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 and there are i mean you can speculate they did it accidentally they did it by watching animals they did it by trial and error you know 
I mean, all of the above is possible but unlikely. Right, very in unlikely. The, in the sense that, you know, these are not plants that you would pick out of the jungle, you know, to eat necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not appet they're not you know, <laughs> appetizing. Right. So, in other words, you have to be fairly deliberate about seeking right. out these plants. These are not things that you would go out of your way to eat. And and, and sometimes there's quite an, an elaborate uh, prepar- preparatory. And uh, there is an too. elaborate preparatory process. Right. Yeah. Right. So, how did they figure it out? You got me, but you know. They have figured out some pretty interesting things. Right. And again, maybe this goes back to what we were talking about before, more of a direct, mm-hmm. you know, what takes us, you know, if, if we want to do analysis of plants, we need instrumentation and we think it's all got to be approached in this technological way. Right, you know, right. Get in and find out what's in it, you know. Mm-hmm. but. They may experience it in a different way. Right. It may be that their intu- intuitions about plant chemistry, you know, if you want to call it that, might have served them well here. Right. You know, and maybe they were able to figure it out. I mean, uh, I had an interesting experience, just as an aside, when we were doing ethnobotanical work in, in the Amazon in 81, when we were looking for this ukuhe. Um, which is largely the knowledge of it is disappearing, right? Even among the people that used it, it's very rare. Most people don't know about it. Most people remember it as something that their grandfathers taught them, Hmm. right? They don't remember how to do it, or they sort of do. But so anyway, we were in this, in this area and we were with the Watoto and, uh, um, there was this one old guy that we had made contact with who actually knew what it was, how to do it. And so with him, he must have been at least 70 when we were there, and this was 25 years ago practically. My gosh. Um, but so, so he was there, and we went out to the field with him to collect many different varieties of the tree that was could be used to make this stuff. There were many species. They're all called collectively kumalas. That's the local name for them. So we went out to collect kumalas, and we collected maybe a dozen, maybe 15 different species. And each time he would look at it and evaluate it, smell it, taste it, assess it, whatever, suss it out in some ways and he would say this one is good this one is is fuerte it's strong you can use it this one not so good you know and so he would go through he went through uh, each one of these collections and gave his pronouncement on whether it could be used or not so we this was all duly noted down in the notebook and we took samples we brought the samples back to the lab and where we could do analysis um, using gas chromatography, right. we could analyze extracts and see were the tryptamines there, and you know, in what concentrations, and so on. And he was basically, you know, a hundred percent correct. Amazing. You know, in the sense that every one that he had called fuerte had good amounts of the tryptamines, and those that he said were weak either didn't have them at all or had only trace amounts. That's amazing. So, 
you know, it works. I don't know right. how they do it, but yeah. it, it works. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, and that's the thing about these substances is that there's obviously so much more uh, that we need to learn about them. And, and fortunately, there are people like you and a number of other people that are continuing uh, to try to learn how we can uh, better utilize things for benefit, you know, to benefit our species as opposed to destroy it. <laughs> and and uh, Right. You know, and um, I don't know, I think... Uh, like you say, lots of questions, but that's part of it, I guess. That the it's the question that drives it, right? So. Well, yeah, yeah, it is, and and you, I mean, it's a pity that there's not more of this work going on because you know, for one thing, uh, you know, these habitats where these plants grow are disappearing, and right. the people are disappearing. When the habitats disappear, the people and the knowledge that they have and the habitats. You know, they all go, right. and then it's no longer there to really be looked at. It becomes of historical interest, right. and that's a pity. I mean, I think a lot of knowledge is threatened, and the, as well as the species. So, and and when it comes to the hallucinogenic plants, you know, it's ironic because the hallucinogenic plants have always been through the their use in shamanism has been the way that our species has connected kind of to this intelligence in mm-hmm. nature, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that. Right, I mean, it's it not is. really, a, I'm not really being scientific. I'm being, right. I guess, mystical or something here. But this notion that nature does have an imminent intelligence is something that the shamans have always recognized. Mm-hmm. And the the hallucinogenic plants have been the way that they connect back to that to get, you know, that gnosis from nature. And we're losing that. And it's unfortunate because, uh, you know, we need it more than ever. I mean, our, our, plan, our planet is in crisis. Yeah. And yet, you know, we've severed the uh, sort of the umbilical tie to the, you know, innate intelligence of what you might call the community of species, right. we've cut ourselves off from that. Right. Which we, we, so we haven't a clue what to do about about it. And uh, and in fact, it's put us in a situation where many people don't even realize that there is a situation, much less what to do about it. Right. They don't realize it, or they deny it. Right. You know, or they yeah, they just don't realize it, or they, you know. This is, goes back to what I was saying earlier. Governments, institutions, people by and large, you know, they can't think in terms of mm-hmm. the consequences 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. Right. But you have to think in those terms. Yep, it's not on the radar. It's not on the radar. It's for, not uh, for on those. the radar. You know, and, you know, it's interesting because I... Uh, although I'm, I'm, I haven't had any experience with the uh, indigenous pe- indigenous people in the uh, uh, in South America, or or um, I, I am familiar with, uh, I have a pretty close relationship to the Lakota people in uh-huh. in, um, uh, in Colorado and up in uh, Pine Ridge in uh, South Dakota. Right. Um, and although they don't particularly use um, Substances, at least not to my knowledge, like we've been talking about, the, 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 there are certain individuals in those uh, societies and those cultures too that are capable uh, to a, to a certain degree of the things that you're talking about, and um, and and their knowledge is being lost as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, indigenous knowledge 
all over the world is being lost. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's it's a it's a I mean, it's a tragedy, you know, because once it's gone, it's gone. Right. Well, there are, uh, like I say, I'm not going not, not gonna to end this interview on a, on a downer note. It's, uh, <laughs> there, are, there are lots of people that are doing good research, and there's lots of awareness of it. It's interesting because on the web, like you say, if you go, you know, it's, it's a whole subculture still, Dennis. You know, there are, there are a tremendous number of people who are still very interested in the work that you're doing and other people, and, and they're out there, and they're, uh, they're doing their thing and um, kind of uh, uh, networking and communicating, and they're a little bit under the radar as well, but, uh, but I think that... I think that uh, I don't well, know I think it's always gone on, and and that is that is a very hopeful part of right. it. You know that we're, you know, we're part of a, an unbroken string of people. Uh, you know, going back as far as you want to look. You know, back to the Pleistocene. That right. have, that in some way, in some sense, we're plant people. Hmm. I mean, we've always had this close interaction with plants, interest in the psychoactive plants, and I think a lot of the, you know, experimentation that you see going on today, some of which is pretty serious, even if it's, you know, what's the term, unauthorized, (laughs) you know, but the the unauthorized research is often where the breakthroughs are first made. That's true. And, And so... You know, I mean, people need to be careful. You have to go into it with your eyes open. These are not, you know, recreational, really. I mean, I think that's maybe the difference between, you know, shamanism and recreational use. Shamanism approaches it, uh, you know, in a slightly more focused way. Um, And with intent. And with intent, yeah. Yeah, but but we're part of this. We're still in this dialogue, in a sense, with the plants and trying to learn from the plants. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot to teach us. Well, you know, and we are very dense pupils. <laughs> we don't learn so fast. Yeah, we're, t- <laughs> we're some hard-headed humans. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> you know, um, I I uh, I've. I've had a different perspective on plants for a while. I, I read, I was lucky enough to get my hands on a book called The Secret Life of Plants uh, oh, yeah. by a guy named Peter Tompkins oh, yeah. uh, a while back. And uh, boy, I tell you, that, that, that'll, that'll open your eyes a little bit. And again, that's this is an old one. Yeah, research, that's a good one. Right, research that goes back 30, 40 years. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, speaking of uh, books and, and plants, there's a new one. A somewhat newer one. It's been out a few years, but uh, that I enjoyed. I might mention to your re- to your listeners is uh, it's called the Lost Language of Plants, ah. and it's by a guy named uh, Stephen Buner. And it's very interesting. Hmm. Well, you know, if if you uh, and you, you've probably at least dabbled in this stuff, but if you're familiar with with the alchemy and the ideas of the alchemist, there, there's uh, historically, it goes back to something that they called the green language, mm-hmm. and they also called it the language of the birds. It's had a number of different names right. over the years, but the green language was was simply exactly that. It was this language of nature, this language of the plants. Right, right. Oh, much of alchemy had to do with mucking around with uh-huh. psychoactive and other types of plants. Right. Yeah, no doubt about it. Amazing stuff. Well, Dennis, we're uh, about at the end of our time here, and uh, I just want to 
tell you how much I appreciate your time and thank you so much for uh, for spending it with us. And gosh, we could talk probably for for a I'm long, sure we could go on all evening. <laughs> I I hope we covered some of the things you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, we did. We actually did. And, and uh, this 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 radio program is uh, has only been on the air for about three months, and I'm I'm doing. Um, I'm kind of laying the, the the groundwork and the foundation for the show in general, and I've talked to a number of people who I think uh, have allowed me to do that. And you you were you were on a very short list, and and I was really glad to have you because my show is about human potential and about consciousness and about really just being awake and 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 thinking and trying to make your own decisions based on information that you gather for yourself. Well, there needs to be more of that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thinking for yourself and critical thinking, that's not something that people do that much these days. Right. So I'm glad you're trying to promote it. Well, you're sure doing a a lot of it yourself. So, all right, well, I'll tell you what, um, I'm going to wish you, when are you going to Peru? When are you taking Uh, off? The two days after the election. Okay, so you're you're, you're going in just a couple of weeks. So so we'll wish you a, a, a super successful and fun trip i hope you have a great time and um and maybe uh i'll uh, i'll send an alarm and i'll give you an email in a few months and uh, and maybe sometime next year we can talk again and you can tell us what uh, what you found when do you think the show will go on this show will go on uh, either november 13th or november 20th um, uh-huh. i i have a good um, i'll be safely out of the country yeah you know <laughs> uh, and and i can edit this out later if uh, if i need to but i wanted to mention something to you i'm 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 doing an interview on November 6th with a with a gentleman from Hawaii. His name is Dr. Michael Heisen, and he is a uh, uh, a marine biologist who's doing incredible work with dolphins and orcas right now. Oh yeah. And um, and he actually was familiar with you and uh, and with Terence, and he he actually said that uh, he thought you had been in Hawaii recently. I do go there fairly often, huh. but I haven't been there since uh, I was there last January. Well, in any case, uh, I'm going to be talking with him, and he's, he's he, believe it or not, uh, some of the research that he's doing, I think probably uh, uh, probably ties in pretty well with what you're doing. These these dolphins are are capable of uh, healing and. Uh, well, I think that's yeah. I think that's some of Lily's work in the dolphin area. Certainly, John Lilly. I mean, he was a big pioneer. In yeah, that. and and in fact, he was uh, this Michael Heisen's mentor. Uh, the, he learned everything he, he knew from from uh, John Lilly before he died. I think he died in uh, 2000. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, yeah. and and he he tells a great story of a woman who's going to be on the air with us and and uh, who recently had a water birth, uh, uh-huh. had her second son uh, in the ocean there in on the beach in Hawaii, and but to make a long story short, uh, they had informed uh, some of their quote-unquote friends in the cetacea world and that, that, that this woman was going to have a baby. And sh- sure enough, when she had the baby, 300 dolphins showed up huh. at the birth. And Amazing. He, he said it was absolutely astounding and it was like a big celebration and they knew exactly what was happening and, and they communicated with them. So they're going to be talking about that. And I thought that uh, because we're going to do the show live with him, uh, that the following week I'll do the show that I did with you because I think that they, I think they, they meld together pretty good. So. Right, right. Right. Well, I'm sorry I couldn't do it live. I just couldn't face uh, yeah, the, it, the one to four shift. <laughs> yeah, the hours killer, are, man. Yeah, the hours are a little brutal. So, uh, yeah. yeah, luckily, uh, Michael Heisen's in, in uh, Hawaii, so I can talk to him, and it's only 10 o'clock at night, so it's not too rough. Yeah, that's so. much more civilized. Well, okay. Next time, you'll have to, we'll have to organize this so I am in Hawaii when you... Give the interview. Hey, I would love to do. I, I would love live. to do a live show with you in Hawaii. That would be fantastic. So yeah, yeah. 
All right. Well, great, Dennis. Thanks again for uh, for your okay, time. Mike. And, and again, have have a wonderful trip, and we we wish you the best of luck. And um, I will be in touch, and we'll talk again. Okay. Yeah. You want to send me an MP3 of that, or you know what I'll do? I I, I will do that, and I will also um uh, I'll send you an email. But I, I archive all of my programs up on the web, so okay. So well, anybody well, can go me. listen to it anytime they want, and uh, and I'll also make sure that uh, I know there are a lot of uh, a lot of folks around who will be interested to know uh, that I spoke with you. So I'll. I'll, I'll, I'll put a couple of notes out there, and I'm sure we'll get a lot of listens over the web. So, Sounds good. All right. All right. Good luck. Dennis, take care. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. There you have it. That was my interview from a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Dennis McKenna, one of the foremost Ph.D. ethnopharmacologists on the planet. And I uh, hope you all enjoyed that. And that will be up on the web uh, in a couple of days. Like I mentioned there, I'll have that thing archived. So if anybody wasn't able to stay up all night and listen to it, you can go check it out uh, at www.radioorbit.com. And uh, anytime, day or night. All right, all the old shows are there as well. So we got about five minutes left to the show. And uh, I'm going to finish off with a little Neil Young here. Uh, I will actually be sitting in for Carol Greenspan doing Jewish Spectrum this morning. And although I do not have the depth of knowledge of the uh, Jewish genre like Carol does, I'm going to do my best. Uh, actually, I'm going to do something very simple, but it's going to be pretty cool. So stick around if you want to hear some uh, live Robert Zimmerman from 1976. Uh, in the meantime, this goes about back to the same era. This is Neil Young uh, with... Uh, after the gold rush, take it easy. Uh, next week on Radio Orbit, I'm not sure who my guest will be, but uh, come back and listen, okay? Later. Well, I dreamed I saw the knights in armor come and saying something about a queen. There were peasants singing and drummers drumming and the archers split the tree. There was a fanfare blowing to the sun that was floating on the breeze. Look at Mother Nature on the run in the Look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s. I was lying in a burned-out basement with the full moon in my eyes. I was hoping for replacement. When the sun burst through the sky, there was a band playing in my head, and I felt like getting high. I was thinking about what a friend had said, I was hoping it was a lie.
dreamed I saw the silver spaceships lying in the yellow haze of the sun. There were children crying and colors flying all around the chosen ones. All in a dream, all in a dream, the loading had begun. Flying Mother Nature's silver seed to a new home in the sun. Flying Mother Nature's silver seed. 